Is Christianity actually true? Can anyone prove it? At the end of the day, it seems the crux of the issue, pun intended, is whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. So what does the evidence tell us? Since it allegedly happened so long ago, what if we took the methods of cold case investigation and applied them to the resurrection? And if there was overwhelming evidence, would you believe it? We're gonna be talking about all of that and more on today's episode of Theology On Air. Well, welcome back to Theology On Air. We're so excited to have you joining us today. Theology On Air is um, a podcast born out of the ministry Theology On Tap, uh, which is a place where 20s and 30s in Houston come together over craft beer and fascinating ideas around philosophy, theology, faith and culture. And then in the podcast, we get to go even deeper into some of those ideas and have guests like today's guests where we get to pick their brains and, um, and present that to you guys. So as usual, if you enjoy this, subscribe to the show, rate us, review us, push the little bell on YouTube, whatever platform you're listening to, um, go all in so that we can keep bringing this to you guys. But I am Sarah Stone. I'm the outreach director for young adults at MDPC here in Houston. And I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Evan McClanahan, senior pastor at First Lutheran in Midtown Houston. And our guest today is one of my favorite people. I'm fangirling a little bit. Uh, Jay Warner Wallace. Jay Warner Wallace is a Dateline featured cold case homicide detective, speaker, author. He's the adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University and Southern Evangelical Seminary and a faculty member at Summit Ministries. Uh, Jay Warner has appeared on television, movies, radio, explaining the role that evidence plays in the Christian definition of faith. Faith is in quotes in that bio. We'll have to ask him more about that. And defending the historicity of Jesus, the reliability of the Bible, and the truth of the Christian worldview. And of course, he's the author of several books that you may know, including Cold Case Christianity and his new book, Person of Interest, which we may get to talk about a little bit today. But uh, Jim, welcome to the show. We're so, so excited to have you. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. It's such an important topic. And I think this is a great venue because look, a lot of folks have questions. Yeah. Where or how to get connected to get those questions answered. And sometimes yeah. often the church can do it for them or wants to do it for them. And it's going to take groups like yours to, to really reach people who uh, maybe don't think they have a safe place to ask those questions. So congratulations sure. on that. Well, thanks. And we're going to answer all of them yes, in the next course. hour. No, not really, but we'll, we'll see how far we go. Okay. Do tell us just a little bit about you and your own personal story. Cause your story of how you came to faith is what got you into all of the things that we're going to ask you about later, but, uh, you were not a believer for many years. What changed, what happened to compel you to do the work that you do now? Yeah, I, mean, I still, you know, I'm not a professional apologist in the sense that, you know, our income is my pension. All right. As far oh, as, funny. as detectives stuff goes, and I still get to consult on cases and that's really how we pay our bills. But this stuff was important to me because I felt like it was kind of you know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's kind of what I felt I wanted to do once I became a Christian, because I became a Christian late. Yeah, you know, I, was, I was 35, uh, really had no experience in the church, didn't know Christians. I was raised here in Los Angeles County. And it wasn't hard to be raised in this area in the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s and not know Christians. And mm. I just didn't know any. Um, we Afterwards, we kind of wondered, how is it that no one ever invited us to church in all the years we were growing up? And even in the first, I wasn't invited to church even as an adult. Um, but my mm. wife was interested and she was interested in kind of figuring out, is there a transcendent worldview that would be helpful 
when raising kids. And our boys were probably about six and four at the time. So uh, we thought, okay, let's, 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 if I'm willing to go, you know, my dad's a very committed atheist, but his second Mm. wife became a Mormon very early on in their marriage. And she wanted to go to ward, you know, on Sundays and he would be happy to go because he thinks any belief system is helpful. Um, Even though they're not true, they are useful. They're useful delusions. And so uh, I had the same view. And so I was willing to go with Susie because I wanted to make her happy and, and, and um, it didn't have to be true for me to see value in it. Like there's, I'm sure there are restaurants that your spouse goes to with you that, that, that your spouse just hates, but you know, this is loves you enough to take you to that restaurant. Well, that was my view about church. So um, I, you know, I died delayed it. I mean, we were, we bought into this neighborhood and, and this is, you know, 30 years ago and I probably did three or four years before she finally drug me into a church. And uh, when I finally got there, the pastor was clever enough and it seemed ordinary enough. That's the other thing mm-hmm. too, is that I, I, had a, I wasn't sure what to expect. I'd never mm-hmm. been in an evangelical church. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd been in like masses, you know, when I, I was a mm-hmm. kid, I had a couple of family members, my mom included, who were kind of like a cultural Catholics in some ways. And so I had a couple of years there where I was a very young child where I would I'd step foot in a Catholic mass. Uh, and I just thought it was such a bunch of nonsense that it just was not <laughs> interesting. I was not interested. And, yeah. and, I, and I really wasn't, Susie was not a Christian before me. Um, we became Christians at the same time. We were together 18 years before either one of us became a Christian. Wow. And a lot of it was just that when I walked in that church, that dude provoked me. He, he described Jesus as incredibly smart. And he described him in a very simple way that provoked me to look him up as the smartest human. Like he could be a wise, ancient sage. That would have been enough for me to be interested in examining the story of Jesus. I mean, there's some stuff about Jesus's teaching that is so countercultural. That is so mm-hmm. you listen to it and you think, yes, yeah, it's, it's tough truth. You know, it's, it's true truth, but it's tough to swallow. It's a high bar truth stuff. His, his call for calls for empathy and things are things that I've always struggled with. And, and I thought those claims were, were, you know, revolutionary in some way. Mm. Um, not that they were necessarily the first time anything like that had ever been said, but it was definitely the first time it had been said that way. Yeah. And so I was, I bought a Bible just to hear what the red letters were. Like, what, what is it about Jesus that this pastor thought was so smart? Mm. And that's what got this whole thing started. Now, now for me, as I read through it, you know, I'd already done eight years of interviewing witnesses and working all kinds of cases from murders down to petty thefts. And, and so I had a sense of what eyewitnesses sound like Hmm. and what provoked me about the gospel authors is their, their, uh, the differences between the gospel accounts, the differences are exactly the kinds of differences you see between eyewitness accounts. Hmm. This does not mean they're true, but it meant that it felt like I, I should probably examine it. I should probably take a closer look. Because the texture of the accounts was so similar to the kinds of, of texture that you see in eyewitness accounts. And that's what started the whole thing for me. So you were intrigued by Jesus enough to read yeah. what he said. And then the eyewitness accounts got you going with your cold case detective. Yeah. I mean, a lot sense. of, you know, when you're listening to an account, a recollection about a series of events, a lot of times what you're doing, you're trying to look for deception indicators. You're trying to look for some, mm. some, some way to kind of sort the truth from the lie. 
know, let's face it. Um, if we were to take and redact out all of the supernatural elements of the gospels, just take them out. So Jesus is an ancient preacher who mm-hmm. teaches wise things, but works no miracles and okay. doesn't not born of a virgin, doesn't arise from the grave. And none of that stuff's in the accounts. I don't think anyone would, would doubt the historicity of Jesus, would doubt the accuracy mm-hmm. of the accounts, would doubt that they reliably represent something that occurred in history. I think it's the insertion of all the miracle, the miracles that were, at least for me, I'm like, Hey, you know mm-hmm. what? I can believe a lot of this, but I can't believe that. That's, yeah. that's nonsense. Okay. That's, this is those, those uh, miracle accounts are what separate fiction from nonfiction, right? That's what separates yeah. uh, ancient uh, history from mythology. And so I was just unwilling to um, read, at least initially, the miracles were the thing that kept, I, I, I was not trying to prove Susie wrong because Susie wasn't a Christian. Uh, now I got a friend, Lee Strobel, who wrote the case for Christ, and he was mm-hmm. trying to, to prove uh, Leslie wrong, his wife. Yeah, uh, but that wasn't me. I thought, who who spends time trying to prove that there is no Peter <laughs> Pan? Trouble does that's it. Yeah, well, yeah. That's I mean, funny. who cares enough about nonsense to try to? So I thought it was all nonsense. But uh, there was that that first provocation was enough to get me started. Okay, so if the supernatural stuff was what you struggle with, and I think that what you're saying right now is what so many people today have a problem with too. Everyone believes most people believe Jesus existed and he was a good guy and he said neat things sure. like love your neighbor. They don't maybe love that. He said, you know, love your enemy, but fine. Um, but it really is the supernatural that we have to figure out if it happened or or not. Right. Because that tells us if Jesus is who he said he was. That's right. So you really, I mean, did you kind of focus on the resurrection as your, um, like, did it happen or not moment? Well, I've, well, I've written two books about this conversion process for me, and one is Cold Case Christianity. The other one's a book called God's Crime Scene, because I knew that mm. the bigger problem for me was my bias against supernaturalism. So mm. I always believe that the only things that are true things are things that can be described using space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. So everything going back in history, like you made a point of saying, you know, oh, I want to pick your brain about something. Well, yeah, that's that's a very naturalistic explanation. But mm-hmm. in reality, we're not thinking with our brains. We're thinking with our minds, an immaterial thing. Hmm. So we can we can't pick your mind. You know, you can, yeah. you, can kind of, you know, you can tap into your mind. You can you can ask questions of your mind, but you can, you can actually right. pick your brain, right? So so there's a. I was at in that camp that that we're just brains. We we don't have minds. We're we're just bodies. We don't have souls. There is right. no immaterial reality. Everything is is explainable by space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. And so before I could really assess what to do with the miracles, I had to ask myself the question. Am I really, do I really believe there's nothing outside Hmm. naturalism? Because it seems to me that all of the evidence we have in the universe points to something outside of space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry as its best explanation. Hmm. This is why I wrote this book called God's Crime Scene. There's eight things, eight aspects about the universe that cannot be explained with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry, which means we've got to step outside of that. Like you cannot explain hmm. the beginning of the universe. The science right. tells us that everything came into existence from nothing. There was no space, time, or matter before there was space, time, and matter as we describe it in the universe. So that means whatever is the first cause of a finite universe that science tells us had a beginning. Yeah. It has to be outside of space, time, and matter because you cannot create yourself. Yeah. And there's the problem. You're already outside of materialism. 
<coughs> pardon me, outside of naturalism before you even begin the investigation, because you can't begin with the material universe unless you have an immaterial first cause. Now, the only question is, is that an impersonal force or a personal being? Hmm. And, and I think if you look at the uh, information we see in DNA, I think it's very reasonable to think that like I always put it this way, if, if I was to come across a dead body in a room and I saw blood spatter on the wall, I could explain that blood spatter from just the chemistry of blood and the physics of how spatter occurs. And I could explain that this could be a, a fall, it could be an accident, it could be anything. But if I walk into the same room and instead of seeing the blood spatter on the wall, I see written in the victim's blood, he deserved it. Yeah. Well, now I'm looking for a personal agent. I know I can't get that information, a message from space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. The Mm. best explanation for messages is mind. And if we have a message in the code of DNA, if that is actually truly information, and and I think that there's no other way to interpret it. It's the highest level of information. It's coded. Mm-hmm. It can be uncoded. It can be decoded. And so that to me, that the best explanation for that is not space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. It is mind. So now we've moved behind. We've got a universe that comes into existence from nothing. And in the universe, we've got evidence of immaterial mind. I think. All the, right. I'm the, in. I'm convinced. You did well, it. I think that's the best explanation for me. And that's what, at least let's put it this way. That's what opened up the door for me to mm-hmm. say, okay. So I've got two areas that I think are, and this is Anthony Flew, the famous atheist, was equally compelled by DNA information. Uh, that's why when he died, he was no longer an atheist. Um, but but I'll mm-hmm. tell you that for me, that was compelling enough for me to let go at least of my hesitancy about, okay, if there's a God of the universe and he enters into his creation, I suspect he'll probably have the ability to do the kinds of things we see in the New Testament. This does not mean the New Testament is true, but at least it, it opened up the door yeah. to, to those kinds of skeptical of your skepticism. Yeah, exactly. Enough to consider it. Okay. So, so you, you use those sort of the cosmological argument and design and those sorts of things to be skeptical of your skepticism. And then you came to the New Testament with those eyes and, and then kind of use cold case detective work to piece together the right. resurrection or the truthfulness of the gospels, right? Right. Yeah. A lot of what we do in death scenes is try to figure out what the most reasonable inference is, given the evidence we have in the room. You know, make a list of all the evidences and a list of all the possible explanations, including the craziest ones you can think of. And Mm -hmm. then you start to cross out the ones that don't seem to be the best inferences from the evidence or the weaker inference from evidence. So that's what you can do with the the resurrection. You can make a list of all the possible ways. You know, you have certain basic pieces of evidence that are claimed early in history that may not even be true, but they are claimed. So you have a claim about an empty tomb. You have a claim about receiving the risen Christ. You have a claim about the dedication of the disciples who were transformed by what they saw. These are claims. So let's list those. Now we can argue about those later, but those are the evidences we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. I think that the empty tomb, for example, uh, and look, for many years, a skeptic named Bart Ehrman believed there was an empty tomb, but he, he had a hard time trying to reconcile the number of ways that atheists typically try to explain the empty tomb. So he shifted in the last few years toward the idea that Jesus was never buried in a tomb. Now, I think there are good reasons to anticipate Jesus's burial in a tomb. But it's because the explanations that many of us as atheists have been using for years don't work, which is why there's like six of these. 
So if you look at the history Mm. of people trying to explain the resurrection from a naturalistic perspective, they typically will say, oh, look, they they lied about it. Mm -hmm. They were confused and mistaken about the the sightings. Um, They they misinterpreted his injury for a death when he wasn't really dead. Mm -hmm. Um, An imposter came in and pretended to be Jesus at some point. Um, Maybe the story of the resurrection was a late addition to the story of Jesus, a corruption over time. I mean, you've got a number of ways non-believers will try to account for the minimal evidence. And so I just made a list of those. I also included the Christian uh, explanation. And if you start going through the evidence and comparing them to all the explanations, you will see there's a reason why there are six non-Christian explanations. You know why? Because none of them work. And if you Mm -hmm. hold to position three, it's because you don't like one, two, four, five, or six. Yeah. And if you hold a position in five, because you don't like one, two, three, four, and six, because you know, those don't, they don't work. Yeah. And so you get a series of people trying their best to devise different ways and often moving between one or the other when they're pressed. And it turns out all of those explanations have a fatal flaw. The only fatal flaw for the Christian explanation is the rejection of supernatural explanations altogether. Mm. And it turns out if you can jump that hurdle, if you, and I think you have good reason to, given the beginning of the universe and the design inference from biology in the universe, then I think you can jump that hurdle pretty easily. And that's what I basically ended up doing. Now you used a word, you've used this word a few times, evidence. And since I've heard you speak before, I know you've talked about like circumstantial evidence. Most lay people, when we hear circumstantial evidence, we think about in movies when, you know, two detectives are talking like, ah, all we have is circumstantial evidence, but it's actually really good evidence, right? Maybe talk a little bit about that. And then what evidence do we have? What does yeah, that look I, like? I get to consult on cases all the time now, and this has been kind of cool. And some of the DAs that I've worked with for years, uh, there's a case right now in Los Angeles called the Robert Durst case. It's just today, probably the de- prosecution will finish its, its case proper today and defense will start its case tomorrow. Hmm. Uh, but uh, I've been just kind of helping out on the closing. And and I'll tell you that um, this is a case that is spanning several decades. It's got national news. It's playing live on YouTube every day. And uh, it doesn't involve much other than circumstantial evidence. And he's going to make mm. a case against Robert Durst with circumstantial evidence. And I predict he will win that case and he'll convict Robert Durst on the basis of uh, a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence. And what it comes down to is there's just two forms of evidence. There's direct evidence and indirect evidence. And direct evidence is just eyewitness testimony. And typically it's strongest when you have an eyewitness who can tell you that he actually saw that suspect do the crime. Hmm. And there's lots of other kinds of ways we use eyewitness testimony, but everything else, if it's not an eyewitness is in the indirect category. So we think of like, you know, what's the hard evidence? There is no such thing as hard evidence. There's just direct evidence and and there's only two categories. And what's interesting about that is DNA falls in the indirect evidence category. Hmm. Fingerprints are indirect evidence. The only thing that qualifies as direct evidence would be an eyewitness. Now, a lot of times today, it could be a video. A video acts the same way, right? It's a set of eyes on the scene that shows us what really happened. Okay. Well, the other word for indirect evidence is circumstantial evidence. And it turns out that the vast majority of cases that go to trial that you've all heard about are all either entirely or mostly indirect. And that's because if I've got an eyewitness or three eyewitnesses who all saw the same thing, I'm probably taking a plea deal. I'm probably not going to go to trial. I'm going to go to trial on a case where you don't have any eyewitnesses. So most of those are indirect cases. And we convict them at a very high clip 
all my cases have been indirect evidence cases and I haven't lost a single one. And that's because this kind of evidence can be very powerful. And it turns Mm -hmm. out a lot of what we're going to be looking at when you look at the evidence for God or you look at the evidence for Christianity falls in that indirect category. But that does not mean it's less jurors are instructed by judges to treat indirect evidence with the exact same authority and weight as they uh, treat um, direct evidence. Indirect and direct are to give them the exact same weight. Uh, and this is actually said specifically here in California in our California jury instructions. So, so we have to kind of stop thinking of indirect evidence as somehow being lesser. So therefore, if I build a case for God's existence, for example, from indirect evidence, so that can't be a very good case. Well, no, I don't expect us to have eyewitnesses when it comes to God. And to be honest, when people tell me, well, God changed my life and God did this miracle, the skeptic that I am, I'm like, yeah, yeah. tell it to the hand. Okay. I don't really <laughs> believe your nonsense stories to begin with, unless you've got an eyewitness who actually saw something, saw God face to face. And even then I would say it was probably crazy. So again, the best way to build a case for the skeptic that I was, was to build it indirectly. Yeah. yeah. And that's how I build all my cases. And I think that's very reasonable and it's actually doable um, when it comes to making the case for God. Well, plus we're getting great tips if we want to commit a crime. So that's absolutely yeah, that's good right. news. Yeah. I know. Don't I know do it to... anywhere near Jay Warner Wallace, first of yeah. all. My yeah. wife always a lot of it. You, if you just assume everyone is a liar, so Evan, if you just assume that everyone you're talking to is a liar then you're probably going to get to the truth of the matter. <laughs> Assume oh, wow. you have a, a, a utter a skepticism for everybody and you're probably going to be okay. Yeah. Fair. Can I, can I ask a question, you know, yeah. related to the evidence, let's just say of Jesus resurrection or, or any of the miracles or anything else, but I guess we kind of tend to focus on the resurrection because that sort of yeah. maybe verifies the rest. But um, is there any other evidence? Like if you could just snap your finger within the realm of possibility, Right. And I would even say something like a video. People people might say, like, oh, if I only had video of the the empty tomb or something. But I'm like, well, we can fake that. So even that yeah. wouldn't be great evidence. Right. But if you could snap your finger in the realm of possibility, is there a piece of evidence that we don't have that you would like to have hmm. to, to, that, that that would justify, you know, the claims that Christians make? Hmm. Well, that's I'm always gonna say yes to that question. In, in any criminal trial I've ever worked, I'm always going to say yes. Is there some better piece of evidence I wish I had in front of a jury? Yes. It doesn't mean it's, it's kept me from winning cases in front of juries, but there's always been, I mean, I wish I had video on everything, right? But do you, you just saw the Tom Brady video where he's throwing the football into the football thrower. Yeah, he's, I wondered okay. if that was real or doctored. It, well, he's. I think they've now admitted it's all CG. So it's, it okay. was a fake and it was really a good fake. And we're all going, yeah. wow. Because yeah. when it first came out, we're all watching that and thinking, look at Tom Brady. He's gonna still got pinpoint accuracy, right? Yeah. Well, okay, so look, you know that if I showed you a video that I thought was demonstrative of anything, you would first come back and say, is that real? Mm-hmm. So again, I just don't think this is why I always say, um, what would it take? If you've got somebody who's really skeptical about God's existence, I think it's fair to ask the question, mm-hmm. well, what would it take? What kind of evidence would it take to convince you? Mm-hmm. And if they said something like, well, you know, God would have to come in right in the sky mm-hmm. or right in the side of a mountain. I've heard people say that and also say a qualifier. And I'd have to be examined to make sure I'm not crazy because you know that even if that occurred, their first inclination would not be to believe. It would be to think they, they imagined it, mm-hmm. right? That's just how set we are mm-hmm. in wanting something to be true or untrue. But I think when you ask the question, at least as a friend or a family member, what would it take? And they tell you, well, it would take some supernatural act of God. 
Well, then I know that okay, so that would, I, my typical response to that is, okay, so is there any point in us talking about this then? Because I, I can't do that for you. I cannot snap my fingers and get a supernatural act of God. Now, if you wanted to talk about why I think that God's existence is the best inference from evidence, then I got no problem doing that. But if, if you're telling me that even that discussion would not lead you anywhere, well, then we can save a lot of time on this. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. You know, that's one of those folks you you have to pray for and model Christ for and be patient with, because it turns out that they've set a bar that's so high. And honestly, even if we could somehow make it happen for them, they would think they would doubt it, like the CG Mm -hmm. in the the video. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a fake. So I just don't know where to go sometimes with people if the bar is that high. But there are people, and I know them, they're in my life, and I plan on sending them this podcast, uh, who would say, I'm open to all of this being true, but I just, you guys keep using this word evidence. I don't know what the evidence is. So maybe walk us through a little bit of some of the actual right. evidences for Jesus being who he said okay, he was. So, so if I said to you that, Hey, um, I know that this, this theft occurred from my garage, my neighbor's garage across the street. And I know that Jerry, Jerry Smith did, did it. Well, how do you know oh, Jerry, Jerry did it? Well, because my neighbor, Tim saw it and he wrote it all down. Okay. But Tim passed away, but I still have the document in which Tim explains what he saw. Well, now you've got something that's evidential in the sense that you've got a document making a claim about something that happened. Now, you may argue, well, yeah, you couldn't bring that into court, though, because there's a hearsay problem. If I cannot cross-examine the witness, I could never use that. That is true, by the way. But that is a bar that is far too high for uh, historical uh, events. In other words, we, we have a high bar in criminal trials because we want to allow everyone who's accused to be able to cross-examine their accuser. And we would rather let a thousand uh, guilty people go than falsely convict one innocent person. That's, That's right. the high bar we have. But that bar is far too high for, for, for history because if it was that I have to have a living eyewitness I can interrogate yeah. before I can believe any claim about the past, well, you can't even believe anything you were told by your great-grandparents. Yeah. yeah. Well, you don't have anybody I can interrogate. So look, I mean, it's one thing to hold that bar high in criminal trials where someone's going to go to jail or be executed. And it's another thing to hold that kind of high bar for historical claims. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to our burglary across the street, though. If I did have Tim's record of what he said Jerry did, I would I could actually infer something reasonable about Jerry's involvement. But I'd first have to test Tim's statement. Does he say anything in there that can be corroborated in some other way? Is, is it internally consistent? Is there some use of language that tells me something about whether Tim is telling me the truth or is being deceptive? And that's the kind of stuff we would have to do to Tim's statement. And mm-hmm. look at the statement as evidential, a piece of evidence, but we want to test it. Mm-hmm. Well, we have eyewitness accounts. Now, you could say, well, why? Look, there's more than one. Yeah, but they're all Christian. Well, yeah, no duh. Okay, so so look, there were people <laughs> who started off like Matthew, who was not in the camp. He was mm-hmm. not a Christian. He was a tax collector. But after he watched that nonsense for three years, he becomes a believer and he writes an account. So now I can't I can't include his account. If you want an account from a guy who was not a, a, a believer to begin with, that's called Matt, the Gospel of Matthew. Mm-hmm. But the question then becomes: Are you willing then to accept that most people who would see this would go, "Oh, I'm in." And if they're yeah. they're writing something, it's probably because they are in. It yeah. doesn't mean he wasn't seen by lots more people who didn't write anything. Of course, sure. he was. 
Uh, this is true, by the way. Lots of people could have seen Jerry across the street and not written anything down, but Tim wrote something down. Let's test Tim's statement and see if it passes our test. So what I did was take the four gospel accounts and I tested them against the template that we use with all eyewitness accounts. Was it written early enough to have been written by an eyewitness? The question is, was the guy really there to see what he said he saw? Two, can it be corroborated in any way? Even if it's just touch point corroboration, that's most of the time all we are going to get. We don't get videos on cases from 1980. Uh, Now, it'd probably be a lot different. Uh, Three, um, uh, has this guy been honest and and accurate and consistent over time, or has he been kind of slippery and changing his story? And four, uh, does he possess a bias or a motive that would cause him to lie to us? That is the template we use when we test eyewitnesses in a jury trial. If you applied that template to the New Testament, you're going to find that it passes that test. You're still stuck with these tricky little things called miracles and these amazing claims about God's existence and Jesus's identity. But if you're going to be fair and just test it on the basis of those four tests, you're going to have to do something with the person of Jesus. But not only that, you know, I talk about that in cold case, but if you, uh, this, there's, there's evidence in the crime scene, you know, that's the gospel accounts, and there's evidence outside the crime scene. And if you look at the evidence outside the crime scene, the history of humanity that leads and burns up in the fuse to the appearance of Jesus, and then the fallout of that explosive event called Jesus of Nazareth, it's going to be hard to deny that Jesus has had an outsized impact on history that really he had no right to have, given his modest upbringing, given his modest stature, who he was. Pretty much everything that you love as an atheist, if you're like me, because I was raised in the arts, okay? So I have a bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architecture, and then I became a police officer. So I loved art, music, um, literature, education, science. Those are the things that I loved as an atheist. It turns out that those five things are entirely dependent upon Jesus and his followers. Hmm. You would not have art, music, literature, education, and science the way you know it today, if not for the appearance of Jesus in history, for the establishment of a Christian worldview, which laid the foundation for those five aspects of culture, and the Jesus followers who followed Jesus, who basically embodied his approach to those five things. And the scientific revolution, for example, is so utterly dominated by Christians. Mm -hmm. And people will say, well, yeah, but in the 15th and 16th century in Europe, that's all there were were Christians. Well, well, no, duh. If you compare the the number of people on planet Earth and other locations, they were much larger groups in other locations than there were in Europe and Christendom. Why didn't it blossom in Asia? Why didn't it blossom in Persia? Why didn't it blossom in other places? It blossomed in 16th century Christendom for a reason, because Christ inaugurated a worldview that made sense of the scientific discovery and established the first modern universities where science could be explored. So it turns out that stuff you love as an atheist is highly indebted to this dude who only had three years to make an impact, was born in one small town, raised in another small town, never traveled more than about 200 miles, never had a family of his own. His parents were poor. He was basically hunted by people who had power and rejected by people who were religious. He was abandoned by his own followers. He was falsely accused, ends up being executed. He never led a nation, wrote a novel, wrote a concert, led an army, never had a social media platform like Twitter or Instagram. Yet this is the guy who changes everything and then eventually has to borrow a grave when he's executed. Mm -hmm. How is it that this is at the hinge point of history? 
Hmm. Now, I think that you would not expect any human to have that kind of impact. But if there is a God who's responsible for his creation and then enters into his creation, he would have that kind of impact. Hmm. That's the kind of impact that Jesus has had on history. That's right. Great. My goodness. We're like at church. I love it. Okay. So you talked about these four kinds of evidence. Is it early enough? Is it corroborated? Is the eyewitness honest? Um, Or does he have like a bias or a motive to lie? I've heard you say that there are really only three reasons why people lie. And that if you were to apply, because I think a lot of people think, okay, so the people that were around Jesus, they just really loved him. And so they said all these things and they went to their graves believing it, but I mean, can we really trust them? But tell us a little bit about the three things that cause usually people to lie and why that maybe doesn't apply here. Yeah. Well, okay. So it's the three things that cause anyone to do any misbehavior to be oh, involved okay. in any misbehavior. And lying is one of those misbehaviors. So yeah. it's, you can actually apply these three things to anything. And they're the things that we have to kind of watch ourselves as Christian leaders, because it turns out that these are the three ways that Christian leaders fall. These are the three ways that corporate leaders fall. These are the three ways that all of us fall. Hmm. It's going to be um, financial greed, sexual lust, and the pursuit of power. That third one, that pursuit of power is a huge umbrella that catches probably 80% of all of our motives. So Mm -hmm. if I am disrespected by somebody and that kind of irritates me as one gang member and I cross over and I kill somebody else, a rival gang member, because I was disrespected. What is that about? That's about pride, authority, Mm -hmm. respect, power. You, you basically, it's a power issue. If I walk into a Walmart and I shoot 30 people who don't look like me, why am I doing that? That's a pride power issue that I think my race or my position is better than yours. Mm -hmm. So a lot of stuff gets caught in the umbrella of power. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is true also. And we get to kind of protect ourselves in those three areas, right? I think the biggest thing we have to protect ourselves from today. And what I've noticed is, is if you start to scratch one of those three itches, you will end up scratching the other two. Mm -hmm. So you have to protect yourself in all three areas. We typically would say, well, yeah, I don't want to get greedy and I don't want to be involved in such sexual pursuits all the time and lust and all that. But all of us have social media platforms and would love to have a bigger platform, Mm -hmm. more hits, more views, more listens to your podcast. It's celebrity and notoriety. That's in that power category. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that happen when someone's such strong desire to be better known and they'll say it's for a noble cause. I want to be able to share the gospel with more people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately that, that pursuit of power, which is what celebrity status is, ends up mm-hmm. expressing itself in the pursuit of money or the pursuit of sex. Well, do I need to men- mention the people who have fallen in the last year uh, in the, within Christendom? Yeah. Um, because they, they scratched one of those two things, those three yeah. things, ended up scratching the other two. So I think this is really important for us to protect ourselves. Now, when it comes to the disciples, we have to ask the question. So what is the itch that you think they're scratching in order to tell this lie? Why are they lying? Because they're going to get what? Get rich off this? No, I don't think they got. No, no, I don't think anyone's even claiming that. And they certainly weren't getting a bunch of girlfriends off this. So I don't think anyone's (laughs) claiming that. But I think you will see people like Bart Ehrman who will say, well, no, I could become somebody important within my fledgling religious community. Mm -hmm. So Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, though, seems to, be, to belie that. Right. I mean, he suffered. I mean, he was beaten to within an inch of his life. How many times? Um, well, not to mention he was already a big deal before he, he pivoted. He was already a big right? deal. So, uh, he converted. He could have been a bigger deal within Judaism yeah. than he even was within Christianity. But, you know, he did. So in the end, I think that's just a weak explanation for what would motivate. Some. Look, here's what I always say. You and I in 2021 might say that we would be willing to die 
for what we believe as Christians. And that would have zero evidential value because there are a lot of people who die for what they don't know is a lie. Mm-hmm. But this is the one group who would know if it's a lie. Their death and commitment oh, to the claim is different than our death or our commitment to the claim because we're trusting something we didn't actually see. They would know if this was a lie. Then you'd just be yeah. a crazy fool to die for. And remember, it's not just the 12 who died for this. I mean, who at least made the claim. Mm-hmm. We know there's lots more than those 12 who were part of the original group. You know, we've got 120 in the upper room in Acts 1. We've got 500 in 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. 15. So how many people are actually part of the disciples? And you'll see this often, that the mm-hmm. disciples were gathered. Is it the 12? The, the 120? Is it the 500? I mean, we don't know how many mm-hmm. disciples are there in those groups uh, who saw the risen Christ. So it's important for us to keep in mind that the group's larger than we think. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Go ahead. Can, can I ask? I'm I'm going back a little bit, but it's <clears throat> it's 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 on the question of sort of persuasiveness and and sort of changing minds. And um, you you talked about you know a jury and you know presenting evidence to a jury, and and then we we're we're talking about like unbelievers. So my question is, when you're presenting evidence to a jury, what is the difference between doing something like that, and then talking to an unbeliever? Because um, one one of my concerns about the the general apologetic approach of of using evidence is, is that, and I'm going to tip my hand a little bit here, but <laughs> you're you're sort of putting the unbeliever in a position of sort of judging the evidence, um, which I think is fair to do in most every situation in life, right? But when it comes to belief, you know, we talked about sort of, you, you talked about, I think, cr- jumping a hurdle, you know, jumping the hurdle into supernaturalism. At the end of the day, that, that's necessary. That, that, that has to be done for us to evaluate the claims. So um, I'm, I'm sort of curious as to if, if, you're, if you're talking to 12 people on a jury, but if you're talking to one unbeliever, mm-hmm. you know, what are, what are maybe some differences either of tactics or approach? Um, you know, just just kind of, you know, what are the differences in those sort of situations? And what advice could you give to us who do talk to unbelievers in, I don't know, maybe the limits of offering evidence or the strengths of it? Or, or just what do you think? Okay, so so here's how I would look at it. And, and part of it comes out of my own personal experience, because as I was looking at the claims of Christianity, you know, my, my, my dad, when he remarried, I think I just mentioned that his wife is LDS. Mm-hmm. She became LDS pretty early in the marriage. My dad thinks it's all nonsense. He doesn't care what nonsense you believe as long as you just don't mess with him on it. Okay. So he, she was fine. She didn't mess with him. And so, so he, they stayed, they've been married ever since. And so I have six brothers and sisters all raised LDS. Mm-hmm. Now look in the end, um, they're making a claim. They are very presuppositional in their approach in apologetics because they realize they cannot be evidential because there is no evidence to support the claims of that 1,000 year period of history that's described in the Book of Mormon. You'd have to be able to substantiate it even with archeology span or with something, and they cannot substantiate it with anything. So this is a very presuppositional approach to, to, to making a claim. And lots of people then they would say, well, God has moved. Just read the Book of Mormon and pray, and God will provide you wisdom as he tells us in the Book of James. So, so just pray about it and God will flip that switch. And they believe those kinds of conversions where God has flipped the switch has accounted for the growth of Mormonism over the years and why so many Mormons are committed to those claims. Now, you don't believe Mormonism is true. Now, as a matter of fact, in order to talk to those Mormons, you're likely to become a very strict evidentialist because you're going to ask the question, why do you believe Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon as opposed mm-hmm. to the gospel authors and the New Testament alone? 
And you're going to have to move toward a very form, a strict form of evidentialism in order to separate yourself from a group that thinks that all you need is to pray about it. And God's spirit will make the difference. It's clear. One thing is clear. God does not need us to say anything in order to make converts, right? I mean, God could come to everybody in a dream and you would never even have to preach the gospel, never even explain the gospel of repentance of, of who it is, Jesus identity. None of that. You, if God wanted to, you could just, you could just be born a believer or not a believer. But interestingly, God wants us to share something, even though he does not need us to share anything. Hmm. The only question I have is, what is the something he's asking us to share? So let's go back and take a look at how Paul, do you think that Paul ever try to find a, a kind of a, a, one of my better friends is Ray Comfort. I love Ray's work, uh, Way of the Master, because he's so good at articulating our sin nature and our need for a savior before he begins to, to offer the solution of the savior. But you will not find that approach in the book of Acts. <laughs> You won't find any approach other than a strict evidentialist approach. Hmm. The prophecies predicted the coming of the Messiah, and we saw it with our own eyes. That's very much a direct evidence approach. And that's why the initial disciples who were chosen in the upper room, when they replaced Matthias, they put Matthias in the place of Judas. They hmm. put him in the place of Judas because Matthias had seen Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection. Hmm. They were looking for an eyewitness. Why? Because they're doing this from a direct evidence perspective. And this happened over and over and over again. Jesus spent 40 days in Acts 1 with the disciples after the resurrection, giving them many convincing proofs. Why? Hmm. That's a strong commitment to evidence. Jesus says, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles I've worked before you. And John the Baptist has doubts and sends his followers. Jesus, John wants to know. You know what I would have said if I was Jesus, if I was a pre-supper, I would have said, you know what? Are you what, is he stupid? This is my cousin. He should know better. No, instead, what he says is, look at these miracles I've worked, that the blind have sight, the deaf can hear. Go back and tell John what you saw. That's an evidentialist. So I think, I think, the, I think it my might question be. is, is, you know, what is it we are saying when we're communicating the truth about Jesus to people? Clearly, God wants us to communicate something. Now, of course, what Jesus does for us, the pure gospel, death, resurrection of Jesus in his stead as our Savior is part of what I'm going to say. But it isn't the only thing I'm going to say. Because, by the way, if it was, then every Mormon conversion you would consider to be a righteous conversion because that's what they do. We can do better hmm. because we actually are called to do better. Yeah, I think what he's saying is that Jesus is a classical apologist. This is something that Evan and I sort of disagree about. I mean, we give each other a hard time. Well, no, I don't think, listen, I, I find myself using every single form of apologetics. Yeah. I'm like, Paul, I'll be some to some and some to another, because I know that if you get to a place where, where this is not powerful for you, because you've got a presuppositional problem, then I'm going to attack that presuppositional position, you know, uh, the belief yeah. you hold to, to help you see, like, if you're a committed naturalist, I realize that a lot of, there's a great book called Stealing from God by Frank Turek, which really mm -hmm. talks about how much of theism has to be stolen by the atheist in order to make a case for anything. So I'm going to take a an approach that's dependent upon the person I'm talking to. Um, but again, it's not like I'm trying to be like, like um, devious because I'm yeah. trying to sell them snake oil. So how's the best way to fool this guy into selling him snake oil? Instead, what I'm trying to do is to listen and see what is the perspective that person holds that is blocking them from seeing the truth. 
And yeah. what can I do to help you lift that? Sometimes it's going to be evidential. Sometimes it's not going to be evidential. It's something else altogether. And I think I need to be able to pivot on a, on a dime in order to be able to do both of those things. But I just, I never am rooted in one of those approaches. So if you said to me, am I, again, I, yeah, I think all of us are like 70, 30s. You know, we, we'll take a 70% approach over here, but if push comes to shove, we'll, we'll kind of just pivot over to the 30. And that's kind of how I am too. I'm probably a 70% classical apologist, but depending on the situation, I'm willing to pivot and change hats if I need to. I want to, I want to go back to this idea that, okay, so say every we're on board with everything we've said so far, but the Bible was written a long time ago and a lot has happened between then and now, even if you take into account like the Dead Sea Scrolls, still a long time. And it was written by people and people mess things up. So maybe it was written to say all of these things, but really they didn't happen. Talk to us a little bit about like how you come to the conclusion that the Bible itself is trustworthy, at least when it comes to gospels and the early writings of, um, well, Paul and the other. Yeah, I, I think that this, this last book we're talking about, this person of interest, really examines the history of leading up to Jesus and following Jesus to argue that if you, and I argue that if you didn't have any New Testament scripture at all, any of it, mm. you destroyed every New Testament book, you could still demonstrate the historicity and deity of Jesus just from history alone. And what I mm. mean is the supernatural way in which the fuse burns up to the explosion. And although the crime scene with the, with the bomb is empty, I don't know what's happened there. I can, from the fuse and the fallout, I can tell you what happened at the explosion site. Mm. That's what we do in front of juries. So, so I would say, okay, that, that that in the fallout of history, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from all five of those lines of evidence, literature, music, art, education, and science, and a sixth, which is just world religions, because every world religion that follows Jesus incorporates Jesus in some way. And mm-hmm. every world religion that precedes Jesus ends up embracing or modifying their beliefs in order to incorporate Jesus as well. Hmm. So you just are stuck with Jesus. If you just had the religious, yeah, if you just had the religious writings of the non-Christian religions and their leaders, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus because they've said so much about Jesus in their own systems. And why? Because it's not because he's the greatest work of fiction, because he happens to be the one historical figure that changed the world. Hmm. Now, now I will tell you that um, just to kind of test the scriptures, I'm, I love the idea of thought um, kind of experiments. And so like a Bart Ehrman has written a book called Jesus Interrupted, where he claims there's so much variation between ancient manuscripts that you cannot trust what we have in the manuscripts we possess today, because you would find that, hey, you know, there's a a word change here, a word change Mm -hmm. there. Well, let's just do this thought experiment. So if I look at every line of scripture where Bart Ehrman or uh, biblical um, uh, experts have have, have discovered a variation between manuscripts, Mm -hmm. I'm willing to throw out every one of those verses, the entire verse, forget the one word. If you're not sure what that word was, because you see it in one ancient manuscript spelled slightly differently or whatever, toss the whole verse out. As a matter of fact, I'm going to toss out every fourth verse, which is, does, that's way more than actually we have a problem with. To be even better, I'm willing to toss out every odd verse or every even verse. You decide. That's mm-hmm. 50% of the text. I am willing to excise and say, I can't trust it. Okay, well, if we did that, what would we be stuck with? We'd be stuck with the same story we have today. It would read choppier, mm. but we'd be stuck with the same story we have today. As a matter of fact, a lot of the verses you would take out from the Synoptic Gospels, for example, if you took it out in Luke, it turns out that it's not under challenge in Matthew. That same yeah. verse comes right back in. So you're not going to lose as much as you think you're going to lose, number one. But even if you lost all of it, which no skeptic is suggesting that literally every other verse has been corrupted and needs to be removed. But if you even thought that was the case, do it. 
you're still mm-hmm. stuck with every single dimension and aspect of the Jesus story from his virgin birth to the ascension. You're stuck with Jesus the way we know him today. So what are we doing here? Like, what are we nitpicking this for? It sounds mm-hmm. rhetorically powerful and it certainly gives people pause, but it has no impact on what we know about Jesus of Nazareth. You're going to be stuck with Jesus. And Paul knew this, right? Paul knew that there were other stories about God, but his story was different because he knew that the story about Jesus was based on eyewitnesses who were still alive at the time of the, of, of the telling. So when he's on Mars Hill, he says, you people are so religious, you know, he's even a temple here to an unknown God, but I'm here to tell you that what you've imagined, we actually saw. Hmm. And, and, and he describes Jesus of Nazareth, a type of, of, of all the, the Jewish types that were, you know, were types of Jesus, the Messiah who was to come. It's really powerful. And, but the, the whole point I'm trying to say is it's not as though Paul was not aware of the fact that there were many other stories about God. He just knew they weren't true. Yeah. And the difference was these were ancient mythologies that were never based on eyewitness accounts. Yet his version, remember, this is, he's making this claim in Acts 17 before we have gospels available to point to. Mm-hmm. We did have living eyewitnesses. And that was the strength of the claim. Again, that's what's so powerful, evidentially powerful about Christianity is yeah. that it makes a claim for which it stood originally on the strength of living eyewitnesses. Who were proclaiming it? That makes it very different than, say, the people who were trying to argue for um, Heracles or Attis or Mithras or whatever deity you want to see coming before Jesus. Yeah, and you know what you just said also works as a kind of a counterpoint to the idea that all religions are sort of equally valuable or equally true. I mean, right. a they don't claim to be true. The claims right. are different. Um, yeah, so they can but, be equally false. They just can't be equally true. I mean, that's yeah. the problem. Right. So because when you have conflicting claims, you can all be wrong, but you can't all be right. I was was one of those guys who would have said, well, yeah, you're all wrong. Um, Sure. But it turns out it's really interesting, too. And no one ever talks about this. And that's probably where the next book I'm I'm going is going to be, um, is that what's amazing about Scripture is that in the end, though, it, it describes the world the way it really is. Hmm. And, and that's powerful. It describes human nature the way it really is. You know, I discovered that those that trilogy of misbehavior, you know, um, uh, financial greed, sexual lust and pursuit of power. I discovered that work in homicides years before someone pointed out to me that it was in scripture hmm. in first in John two. And I never knew it was there. But again, it's because Christianity describes the world the way it really is. And people will argue with you. Oh, I can think of a fourth motive. Okay, well, you're wrong. <laughs> there is no fourth motive. There's we'll direct people motive. back to you if they say that. Yes. Yeah. You know, you know, how about jealousy? Well, what's at the root of your jealousy? Well, how about vengeance? Yeah. What's at the root of your vengeance? In the end, you got to get to the root causes. And they're always those three. What are uh, some of the kind of common objections that we haven't yet talked about that you hear people give? When you, you, maybe you give these talks and they come up to you afterwards and they're like, well, but what about such and such? What are some of those things you hear? I'm guessing at least one of them has to be about sort of suffering, why God would allow suffering if he was. Yeah, no, I think that's probably still even big in the generation of young people that we're, but I think, oh. it's, okay, so I think it's that big that's, for me and I'm all in. Yeah, yeah no, no, yeah, I, I get it. I, I always, you know, if, no one sees more stupid than I think cops see uh, and no oh, one's yeah. more suffering um, probably than mm-hmm. first responders see at some point, mm-hmm. all kinds of first responders, but, um, and doctors and all that. But, but I think in the end uh, right now, my concern is for a generation that we're, that are young right now um, 
it, it, it's probably not going to be suffering as much as it's going to be that we are living in a world that has largely come to reject every value of Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. Say more so, about that. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is um, it used to be people would say, oh, I don't like Christians, but Jesus seems like he's pretty cool. Hmm. Well, are you familiar with Jesus' teaching about sexuality or marriage or identity, gender identity? These are things that the culture, for the most part, has thrown under the bus hmm. that that if, if that young people think. And also, I think that young people now we've really politicized everything, including our religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of young people who are either very uh, kind of the, the the younger millennials or the older Gen Z who have said to me that the struggle is if I have to vote with that party in order yeah. to be part of this religion, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sensitive to that. Yeah. I think the gospel is so far upstream of politics that I don't want to get hung. I don't want to attach the two. Yeah. Well, there was um, a, a Christian group that was just denied its tax exempt status on the basis that everything it advocated for was what Republicans advocate for. So that's right. Tax and that was there in, in Texas, right? I, I can't remember the state, to be honest with you. So, yeah, yeah I think it was there. I'm, in I'm Texas. guessing they're going to appeal it. But if if that if that is the precedent that stands uh, there, there won't be a Christian group that gets tax exempt status in the future. Well, if, yeah, if yeah exactly. Christians, you know, marriage and the, the, the issues under the, under debate right now. So, yeah. And so that there's the problem there. The problem is going to be, are, are we going to compromise the teaching of Jesus to, to peacefully coexist with our culture? Or are we going to take the view of Jesus who in that beautiful sermon, in which he says, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the gentle and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and the merciful and, and the pure of heart and, and the peacemakers and those who are persecuted for the sake of, of righteousness. And then he says, blessed are you when, not if, when people insult you mm. and persecute you. And falsely accuse you of all kinds of evil because of me. Not if that's going to happen. All along, this has never been a worldview. Jesus knew all along. This was never going to be the popular, culturally accepted worldview. This is a much higher righteous worldview that is going to cost you something. Are we raising up a generation of, of young people who are willing to pay a price for something. That's my biggest fear is that what we've done and what social media does for the most part, it puts the focus on me, on my own brand, on my own celebrity. I have a world in which I can navigate all social media. I can navigate all media consumption. Oh, I don't like that. I can change the channel. I can, I can it's all on demand. Everything's on demand. I don't have to wait till eight o'clock on Thursday to watch something. I can decide when and if I want to watch it. I have a streaming platform. I hate that streaming platform. I love that one. I can choose all this. In a world like that, where I get to pick and choose everything, it's all about me. Why would we ever be surprised that the, the asking someone to submit what they might want for something that's bigger than them, hmm. that transcends them. This is going to be the hardest ask of this generation, I think. Especially if we're saying, if you do choose this right thing, you will suffer. Yep. It's it's not the greatest sales pitch. Yeah. So yeah. I know we're I know we're just about out of time and and, and y'all may even go longer, but I have to uh, jump to a baseball game soon. But th- yes, that's kind of what it. I was trying to get at a little bit. Um earlier, I think, which which is that to be a follower of Christ, 
Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not opposed to all the evidence in the world. In fact, I, I love evidences. Um, but, you know, one of the messages of the apostles and Jesus as well was repent and believe. And so mm -hmm. I think there's a there's a question of, for me, I mean, I'm not even sure of the answer because I do street level ministry uh, and it, it looks a little bit like what Ray Comfort does as well when when the college is in session across the street, which has been a year and a half. But one day I'm going to resume that. And um, and so I think there's a question of, well, you know, do they do they need to repent first or can we bring, uh, you know, arguments and evidence to the table that eventually elicits repentance? But at the end mm. of the day, unless you're really fully committed to who Christ is, you won't stand up to the pressures and you you will be the 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 seed that falls on rocky or thorny thorny mm. soil or whatever. So you know no, I, I totally agree with you. So so how I've always approached that is that the, the evidence for me is what knocks down barriers between you and the gospel. But the gospel is what saves you, not the evidence. Mm. As a matter of fact, I can give you all the evidence and show you. And I got to a place where I believed that the gospels were telling me the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. And I have what I call belief that, which does not save me. It's belief in that saves me. Now, how do I transition from belief that to belief in? Well, okay, I'm, I'm reading through all the gospels and I taught soul Susie. I said, you know, I, I think this is about as much ways as you can test this. I tested this every way from Wednesday. I, I think it's, I believe it's telling me the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. And I said, but here's what I don't get. As I only had been in the gospels for probably about four or five months. I said, I don't understand why Jesus had to die on a cross to begin with. Like, I don't get the gospel. What, like, do you understand what, what that's about? And she's like, I don't really get it either. So we had belief that the gospels were telling us something reliable, but still ignorant completely of what the gospel is. And so I decided I'm going to start reading. So I started reading through Romans and I can remember where I was when I was reading through Romans and reading through first Corinthians. And it suddenly dawned on me that what it was, who it was describing me as was mm. absolutely true. And I felt this deep sense of a need for a savior but that happened because I trusted first what the gospels said about Jesus in the gospels to the point where I began to trust what the New Testament had to say about me. So all that did was open a door, lay down my, help me to lay down 35 years of, of, of bias and pride and all the other stuff that we develop over 35 years so that I could hear what God had to say about me. <laughs> Because at first, if I, if I didn't have a way to lay that down, it, it would have been just years preaching at me, blah, 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 blah. I didn't really saw myself as a sin, simple person. I'm a police officer. I take idiots to jail. Okay, I'm not one of those <laughs> idiots. Okay, that was my view as a police officer. Pretty arrogant, right? But that it was what happens. I have a partner who would always say it this way. We are the good guys, Jim. We take bad guys to jail. If there's a good God in a good heaven, there'll be a place for good guys. Mm -hmm. well, that was my view. Okay. So I had to really get to a place where I could hear about my own depravity, hmm. which is what kind of what you're doing. Also, like what, what, lead, what, what, what Ray does, you know, as he, 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 he builds that case for depravity first, and then you see it. So I just needed something to help me lay down the barriers so I could hear what God was saying about me. And that's a lot of why I think we use evidence to do. I don't think the evidence is the gospel. I think the evidence hmm. is just the thing that clears the brush hmm. so that you can hear the gospel clearly. Well, you, you started to answer my last question. So maybe just round out any last thoughts you would have on. So somebody hears all of this, maybe they read one of your books or a couple of your books and the brush is cleared and they believe in, or believe that whichever one you said is the one that is, you're not quite there yet. Right. Yes. Believe what, in. Yeah. What's next? What does it really mean then to 
be a Christian? What does that really look like? Maybe what, what's that final sort of turn? I mean, we would say the Holy spirit does something in you, but yes, I'm with you on it. Yeah. So I'm with you on that too. I mean, I said, why don't spend a lot of time preaching politics or preaching social positions? Because I know that once people recognize their need for a savior and accept Christ as Lord, something miraculous happens because Mm -hmm. now if you are really committed to to your beliefs, right, you actually believe this is true. I'm now listening to the word of reading the word of God, which I never paid attention to before. And God's spirit is provoking me to read more and more and more and it's challenging me and i'm now got this tug of war between the natural man and the spiritual man i'm doing that Romans mm-hmm. 7 thing that paul talks about and driving myself crazy trying to like let go of the old habits that i've possessed yeah. for years because i've convicted these are no longer the habits i need to hold on to and so that's the process of sanctification right we always say this right on justification occurs in a heartbeat sanctification takes the rest of your life and that's that's really where i think the spirit does so here mm-hmm. i am now 20 what 24 years into this journey. Um, and, and I will tell you, well, let's see, is that right? 25 years into the journey. No one's going to fact check you. Yeah. I'm 60 now. So I can't, what can you do? So anyway, um, but the point is I still see that I've have I come a long way. I think I have, do I have a long way to go? Yeah, I do. I hate going to be, be honest. I mean, part of that, I still have things that have been bad habits and patterns that I established as a police officer in terms of just building walls and barriers to make sure you're not disturbed by the work that I still have a hard time put pushing down. Mm. Um, so I have a tendency to be uh, still struggle with those areas. Um, but I, th- the fact is I'm still struggling and I want the struggle. And that's because the spirit is in me doing this work because right. before, believe me, I saw no need to struggle. I just figured my way was the right way and you're an idiot. Okay. It's a mind over matter thing. I don't mind. You don't matter. That was my view. Oh my gosh. Okay? Well, it's like, really, at some point, God's spirit mm-hmm. comes in and you're like, okay, this, this is a terrible view to hold. And mm-hmm. you're called to have empathy toward people and you're called, called to be a different kind of person. And that's become the struggle of my life ever since. Hmm. Well, uh, if people are listening or if they've read your book or they listen to this and then they do that and, um, and they want to wrestle more with you, I mean, if they want to ask us questions, as always reach out to us, we want to talk to you about this kind of stuff, especially if you live here in Houston, we'd love to go grab coffee with you and, or a beer. Cause it is theology on tap. Uh, you can learn everything you need to know about, uh, theology on tap at houstontot.com. But Jim, if people want to wrestle with you a little bit about this, how can people find you? Where can they engage yeah. with you? Well, I'm at coldcasechristianity.com. And what we try to do there is we know that we're moving into a season where social media is going to be more like, look, this is great. You're doing this on, on live on Facebook. Folks, a day is probably coming where this is going to be more difficult to do. Um, so we're all trying to figure out how do we grab and mentor each other privately in a way that's secure. And so that's what mm-hmm. we do there. We have a community there. Our, we're hoping that to be able to have a place that, we're, that can't be canceled, that we can actually explore these ideas uh, in a way that's safe. So that's where it reached me. And we do monthly discipleship Zooms. And um, oh, wow. you know, we try to, to kind of make sure we're discipling each other. I call this being a good one. We don't need another million dollar apologist. We need a million one dollar apologists. And that's what I consider myself to be. It's just another $1 apologist in a community though, that's getting larger and larger mm. have a million dollar impact on the world. And that's what we're trying to do there. So Ooh, I, I, like that. I want to, I think I'm maybe like a three, $4 apologist mm-hmm. out of a million, you know? Okay. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. uh, for those of you listening, thank you so much, Jim. Thank you so much for coming on. This is such a treat for us. Um, and I, I mean, I, I've loved everything we've talked about. I wish we could do two, three more hours, but Until we see everybody again, or until you guys come back to the podcast again, as usual, we encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed. 